Well, my name is Steve Wall, and I'm the campus pastor here at Genesis Church. Uh, I want to add my welcome. Thanks for being here this morning. Um, I know there's some little football or cricket match or something on this afternoon that a lot of you are pretty, pretty excited to see, so I know Jose's excited to see that, whatever that thing is, um, but... Uh, I don't know. I probably won't watch it. Um, As Jose said, we are starting a new series this morning called The Circle Maker, and it's based on this book called The Circle Maker by Mark Batterson. Mark Batterson is a pastor out of the Washington, D.C. area, National Community Church, a big uh, multi-site church out in Washington, D.C. You don't have to pick up the book to understand what we're talking about in the series. You can just come and show up, and I think it'll be self-explanatory. But if you're looking for a way to go deeper, um, then this is a great resource. We're going to spend the next four weeks talking about how we pray and why we pray. And uh, we're going to start that this morning. And if you want a better resource for that, um, this is a great book I've been reading. This is really changing the way uh, that I've been praying. And my prayer this week has been that the material from this book and from Scripture that we're going to share over the next four weeks will, will change the way you pray. In fact, um, I was convicted this morning as I was talking. Kevin Russell's our groups and discipleship pastor. I was at our Noblesville campus this morning. Kevin's teaching over there this morning. And uh, we were praying together, and as we kind of reached the end of that prayer, we kind of realized that both of us were praying the same thing, and that's that uh, we believe over the next four weeks that God is going to reach out and touch some of you to even get you to start praying or to start praying in a new way. And so that's my prayer uh, for you this morning. Uh, If you have your Bible with you, you might open to Joshua chapter 6. We're going to get there in just a couple minutes. Uh, We're going to spend most of the morning in Joshua 6. But first, I want to talk about this idea of where the circle maker came from. Uh, This is a story that Batterson tells in his book. It's captured in extra-biblical literature. In other words, it's not in the Bible. It's extra-biblical. It's outside the Bible. Um, But it's pretty much been well-documented as true in the first century before Christ, first century B.C., the generation before Jesus was born, uh, it was a really tough time in Israel. I mean, if you think about it, if you know your Bible very well, you know in that time that um, God wasn't speaking to the people of Israel, that there was a 400-year period of silence before Jesus came. Uh, There hadn't been a prophet from God in about 400 years. Uh, Miracles were a distant memory for the people in Israel. And to top it all off, a severe drought threatened to devastate the land of Israel. But there was one man, an eccentric man, who lived just outside the walls of Jerusalem, Uh, a man named Honey, and Honey believed that God was still listening to his people. Today, you know, rain can be an inconvenience for us. You know, it can ruin our plans. It can uh, keep us inside when we want to be out. But in an agrarian community like the nation of Israel, uh, rain is life. I mean, especially in an era before canals and irrigation and, uh, you know, sprinkler systems, uh, rain was life. Without rain, there's no crops. Uh, Without rain, there's no livestock. Without crops or livestock, there's no food. And without food, people die. Rain is literally the lifeblood of an agrarian community. Well, it hadn't rained in quite some time. Honey uh, decided to take matters into his own hands. He retrieved his six-foot staff. He placed the tip on the ground and spinning like a compass you might use in math class, drew a circle all the way around himself. Within a few seconds, he'd drawn a complete and perfect circle in the dust, and he stood in the center. Then with all the authority of the prophet Elijah, who we read about in the Old Testament, who also prayed for rain, Honey called up to heaven. He said, Lord of the universe, I swear before your great name that I will not move from this circle until you've shown mercy on your children. Honey prayed with great boldness. He prayed with authority. He prayed from a place down deep in his soul. This wasn't words that were coming from his mouth. This was coming from his gut. And the Jewish legend tells us that Honey's words ascended to heaven, and as they ascended to heaven, that drops of rain began to fall on the land. 
A collective gasp swept across the people of Israel as the, the crowd had gathered to witness Honi's prayer. Every head turned heavenwards, but Honi's remained bowed. The people started dancing and celebrating in the sprinkles, but Honi wasn't satisfied. And so again, he raised his voice to heaven saying, Not for such a rain have I prayed, but for a rain that will fill cisterns and pits and caverns. And the rain turned to a torrential downpour. Eyewitnesses to the event say that the raindrops were the size of eggs. It was so, rained so hard that people fled to the Temple Mount to escape the flash floods that were sure to come, but not Honey. He stayed inside his circle, and once again he prayed. He said, not for such a rain have I prayed, but for the rain of thy favor, thy blessing, and thy graciousness. And the downpour melted away. And legend tells us that in its place became, began a calm peaceful rain, what we might call a soaking rain, each raindrop a tangible symbol of God's favor and God's grace. And for generations in Israel, that day would be remembered as the day the circle maker was born. Among the people of Israel, Honi the circle maker became a hero, as you can imagine. Now, some of the religious people of the day were not so excited about this. Some believe that drawing a circle and demanding rain dishonored God. They wanted to excommunicate Honi. But they couldn't deny the miracle that had happened. And Honi was ultimately honored, and thus began the legend of the circle maker. Now, even today, that prayer that saved a generation is considered one of the most significant prayers in the history of Israel. Uh, Much of Honi's story is captured in the Talmud, which is the uh, holy writings of the rabbinic Jews. And the legend of Honi the circle maker stands even today as a testament to how one single prayer can change the course of history. Well, it's been over 2,000 years since Honey drew his circle in the sand, but I believe that God is still looking for circle makers. And even though it's not scriptural, that story is not from our scripture, from our Bible, the point of the story stands as true, and it's validated by several stories in scripture that we'll see over the coming weeks. And the point of the story is this, and this is in your notes, if you want to write it down, uh, if you want to remember anything from today, this is what you want to remember, and it's this. God honors specific prayers. You know, so many times we as Christians, we pray vague prayers. We pray wimpy prayers, all right? We pray that God would guide us or be with us or that his spirit would be in us. And I don't mean to belittle those prayers or say you shouldn't pray them. But those are things that God's going to do anyway. What we don't always do is pray pray bold prayers or pray specific prayers or what I might call extreme prayers. You know, we live in an extreme culture. Our culture is one built on extremes, even today, especially today in the 21st century. I mean, extreme sports are incredibly, incredibly popular. Uh, one of my favorite events to follow is called the Badwater 135, uh, and this starts next weekend. This is a 135-mile foot race. It's a running race, 135 miles from Badwater, which is the lowest point in uh, North America, Badwater in Death Valley, California. They start there, and they do it in July on purpose. Okay, it's a, it'll be 122 degrees probably there next Monday when they start this race. And they race 135 miles up to the uh, portal of Mount Whitney. Now, Mount Whitney is the highest point in the lower 48 states. So they go from the lowest point in the lower 48 states, 135-mile run without stopping, to the highest point in the lower 48 states. It's incredibly insane. It's really extreme. And, uh, but you know what? They only allow 120 people to do it, and they have a lottery. They have about 2,000 people that sign up for this lottery to run this 135-mile foot race because we live in a culture of extremes. 
Now, maybe one you're more familiar with is the Ironman Triathlon World Championships in Kona, Hawaii. That happens every year in October. You know that there's a lottery for people who want to participate in this crazy, weird sport, like to swim 2.4 miles, bike 112 miles, and run a marathon 26.2 miles. There are 8,000 entries for about 200 available spots. We live in a culture of extremes. But it's not just extreme sports, uh, extreme eating is popular now, right? Like uh, last weekend, maybe you watched the Nathan's Hot Dog Contest uh, that happens on the 4th of July. Over a million viewers regularly watch the contest every year on ESPN. If you missed it, I'll tell you that Joey Chestnut won again. Joey Chestnut is uh, kind of the eight-year running uh, champion. He ate 61 hot dogs in 10 minutes. It's like my last trip to the state fair. Um, He's run eight in a row since his main rival, Takuru Kobayashi, was kicked out of the competition because he wouldn't sign a contract uh, with the Major League Eating. I didn't even know that was a thing, but that's a thing. There's a league called, the ma- called Major League Eating. Kobayashi wouldn't sign with them, and so they've kicked him out of the contest. Now, Joey Chestnut ate 61 hot dogs, and then when he finished and won, he turned and he proposed to his girlfriend. Ladies? Sorry, one more guy off the market. Uh, there is a women's contest now, too. The women's winner ate 34 hot dogs in 10 minutes, if you can believe that. But its popularity has spawned copycat contests all over the United States. On the 4th of July now, in uh, most states, you can find at least one hot dog eating contest. Um, shows like Man vs. Food have encouraged normal people uh, to take extraordinary eating challenges, like eating egregious amounts of food. Um, they did one at Bub's Burgers just down the road here uh, a couple of years ago. You may remember that. Or unbelievably spicy foods. Extreme eating, extreme sports, even extreme couponing is a thing. But for most of us, we're not really extreme prayers. We we like our prayers short and simple and safe. Thank you very much. But what we see from the story of Honey and from so many of the others that we read in Scripture is that God honors specific prayers. And specifically, God honors his promises. Like When our prayers line up with his promises, that's when God is most glorified. God's promises contained in Scripture have the potential to be some of the biggest, boldest, and best prayers that we ever pray. And what I want you to know is that God isn't offended by your biggest hopes and your biggest dreams or your boldest prayers. In fact, he's offended by anything less. In the book, Mark Batterson says, if your prayers aren't impossible to you, they're insulting to God. Why? Well, because small prayers don't require God to come through, right? I mean, if you're praying for something that's already possible... Well, what are you praying for? Just go do it. It's only when you're backed into a corner and there seems to be no way out and God has to deliver that he can best show his power and his might and his glory. So when we ask him to grant us traveling mercies or we ask him to provide a little more financial cushion, meh. But when we ask him to part the Red Sea or to float an axe head or to make the sun stand still, Well, those are the times when God is moved to action. God loves keeping promises. He loves answering prayers. He loves performing miracles and fulfilling dreams. That's what he does. That's who he is. And and the bigger the prayers and the bigger the dreams and the more impossible the situation seems, well, the more God is honored in that. And because when God comes through, there's no doubt who should get the glory. The greatest, most memorable moments in life are when those miraculous times when our inability to get something done intersects with God's ability 
to get something done. And they often intersect at the point where we draw a circle around our impossible situations and beg him to intervene. I don't know what circumstances you find yourself in today. I mean, I, I don't know what's happening in your marriage or in your professional life, in your finances or in your home. But I know this. If it's gotten too big or too difficult for you to handle on your own, well, the God of the universe is waiting for you to invite him into that, to draw a circle around that problem, around that situation, and ask him to come and be the solution. Now, here's what you need to understand. If if you're going to get anything out of this four weeks, uh, maybe the most vital thing for you to understand uh, as far as the role prayer plays in our lives is this. God is for you. God is for you. If you don't believe that, you're going to be relegated to praying small, insignificant, timid prayers that have no eternal significance. Now, you may be in a place right now where that's hard for you to believe, that God is for you. Maybe you're facing something tough. You see no way out. You look at your circumstances and you think, you know, I don't, I'm not really sure that if, I, if God is for me that he would have me here right now. But I'm confident that sometimes God allows us to get into situations where there seems to be no way out just so that we can see that he is the way out. You may be in your situation today, and you may be one prayer away from seeing a problem solved or a body healed or a dream fulfilled or a miracle performed. I was thinking about prayer this week, and I started looking back through some of my old um, prayer journals. I've been uh, good at times and not so good at times at uh, keeping a journal of my prayers. And uh, I, I came across one from January of 2012. Um, if, if you don't know, uh, this, is, uh, 20, this campus, at the Carmel campus of Genesis Church was launched in 2012. And we were uh, praying about that in January. We launched it in August. And uh, on January 26th of 2012, I was fasting and praying for the Carmel campus. I don't do a very good job of fasting either, so don't hold me up as some, um, you know, super holy person on that. It just happened to be this day, and I decided to write about it. Um, So I'm glad that I wrote about it so I could remember that I actually did fast at times while we were getting ready to plant this campus. Um, My scripture reading that day was from Exodus 36. In Exodus 36, Moses had been commanded to build a tabernacle, a place of worship for the nation of Israel. And uh, in Exodus 36 is when they complete uh, the building of that. The Bible says that they received from Moses all the contribution of the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing free will offerings every morning. That's Exodus 36, 3. And then it said, the people brought so much that Moses said, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. In other words, you guys have brought too much stuff. Don't bring anything else. Can you imagine if I had to stand up here one Sunday and say, hey, you guys gave too much money last week. Don't give anything in the offering this week. That's what Moses is doing here. And it just so overwhelmed me as I was fasting and I was praying for this campus. I started writing down my prayers for the Carmel campus. And I prayed that God would move in Genesis Church to excite people about multiple campuses. He did. I mean, and our people at our Noblesville campus at the time got excited and went and launched that. That God would raise up a team of laborers uh, to finish our building on time. We finished on time and we, we launched right on time. That I would uh, find ways to build relationships in Carmel. I've done that thanks to you guys. Uh, that, that God would raise up ministry leaders for Carmel. He's been incredible at raising up people to lead every area of ministry at this campus. I prayed that we would receive the funds we need through the offering. I think you just need to look around and see that we got what we needed to get this uh, campus started. Uh, that we would be amazed at the people who rise up and contribute and serve. And that's just been... Um, no less than true to see the people who um, maybe were at the Noblesville campus that came here that were never serving and never giving and that stepped up and did that. 
And so it's just so incredible when we look and we pray things that we don't have any control over, but we know that God does, and we invite him into those situations to see how God answers those prayers. Well, as I said, the scripture we're going to look at today is from the Old Testament book of Joshua. If you're not familiar with your Bible, it's the sixth book in your Bible. Joshua was the leader of the nation of Israel. He came after Moses. Um, he was a, uh, this was a group, the nation of Israel was a group that God chose to be his own special possession. He, uh, he followed a man by the name of Moses, as I said. Joshua was a man of bold faith. And he was the man chosen by God to lead these people into their new homeland. Now, what had happened was 400 years before Joshua, God had promised uh, one of his, uh, a man named Abraham, that this nation, this great nation that he was going to build would have a place of their own. Uh, and uh, the problem was when Joshua and the people of Israel got to this promised land, uh, well, there were already people living in it. But that wasn't going to stop Joshua. And it sure wouldn't stop God. And so let's pick it up in Joshua 6, uh, verse 1. It said this. Now, they started, the first place they came to was a city called Jericho. Now, the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. Now, this is hilarious to me when I read this. Because from Joshua's standpoint, from the people of Israel, they get to this city with these walls around it, and the gates are barred, and God said, See, I've already delivered it into your hands. And they've got to be looking at that thinking, What are you talking about? This is a promise from God. I've already delivered this into your hands. Isn't this funny? He said, I've already delivered this into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. And then God lays out the instructions. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So we've got this great army assembled. And what weapon are they going to use? Well, they're going to use their voices. Verse 11, skip down to verse 11. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord when the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, Except on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now, Jericho was a small city, probably about 12 acres total, but that doesn't mean it wasn't well protected. It was, uh, historians say it was surrounded by probably two walls, a lower wall, which would have been six feet thick, and then an upper wall, which was probably 50 feet high. Uh, When the soldiers from Israel looked at Jericho, it probably looked like an impenetrable fortress. What must they have thought about Joshua? This guy's crazy. We're going to march around the city for six days? That's going to look silly. But not nearly as silly as on the seventh day when we march around it seven times and then shout. Every soldier had to be wondering why. Why not use conventional weapons? We're one of the greatest armies in the region. You know, why not... Use a battering ram to knock down the gates. Why not climb the walls to get in? Why not use something a little more, I don't know, conventional? Instead, God said, take the silent approach. Just walk around. March around the city. Circle around the city. If you do what I say, 
those walls will come down. From the outside, it must have looked like the nation of Israel had given up on the battle. But that's not what happened at all. Instead, what they decided to do was to let God fight the battle for them. You know, as a side note, when we pray, that's what we do too. So many times we get in a situation and we say, all there is to do now is pray. But really, that's the first thing we should do. When we give up trying to fight our battles and start praying, well, that's when we allow God to come in and fight our battles for us. And that's exactly what the nation of Israel did. So they circled day one, not feeling a little silly. Uh, Day two, maybe a little less. Day three and day four, gaining some more confidence. Their strides get longer, their steps more sure. By day seven, they're probably bursting with anticipation to see what's going to happen. Remember, they're not saying a word. This whole time, they're silent. They're just circling. Can you imagine what the people of Jericho must have been thinking, looking outside and watching this entire army just walk around, walk around their city, just circling? Then day seven came. They circled the city seven times. The priests sounded the ram's horns, and then came the shout, thousands and thousands of people shouting at the same time, and the walls come crumbling, crumbling down. After seven days of circling Jericho, God came through on a promise he had made to Abraham 400 years earlier that the people of Israel would have a land of their own. In one move, he proved that God's promises don't have expiration dates. They're not subject to the limits of time and space like we are. And this one miracle reminds us this. If you keep circling God's promise, he'll deliver. And his story is so instructive for us in that it doesn't just show us how God performed this one miracle, but it gives us a pattern to follow. It's a pattern that when you read the Bible, you see repeated time and time and time again. It challenges us, first and foremost, to boldly and confidently circle God's promises in prayer. I mean, think about it. Jericho wasn't just a city. It was a promise from God. And once they started circling it, it was delivered into their hands. So what does it mean for us to circle God's promise? You know, what's the promise that you're circling right now? What are you praying around? What miracle are you marching around hoping that God will deliver on? What what is the dream consuming your life right now? Are you circling it in prayer? Well, where do we find God's promises? We find them in Scripture. It's so important to pray Scripture. You don't know what to pray? Start praying through verses or or passages that you've read. I was just, um, I thought I'd give you an example of this. Again, I'm not asking you to hold me up as, as the example, but this is one example. Um, I have, uh, Kevin Russell for one, and some other people in my life have really challenged me to pray more scripture in my life. So many times I get uh, unfocused in my prayers, and I'll be praying, and I forget what I'm supposed to be praying for. And so um, I, I decided I would start praying uh, scripture. And so as I'm reading through the Bible, I find a passage that really speaks to me, and I'll write it down. And we'll talk more about this in a couple weeks, but then I will pray through that. And so just um, a few weeks ago, I found this verse, Psalm 69, 6. It says, don't let those who look to you in hope. So this is David, uh, a great warrior, a great king, a man talking to God. He said, don't let those who look to you, God, in hope be discouraged by what happens to me. Dear Lord, God of the, God of the armies, don't let those out looking for you come to a dead end by following me. That's in effect what Psalm 69, 6 says. And so I just prayed, I wrote this down. This was my prayer. Lord, I know I'm sometimes sinful, sometimes prideful. I'm amazed that you continue to use me in spite of that. The prayer of David's above is my prayer, both for my ministry in the church, but also for, with my children and with my wife. I pray that they will look at my life and see someone trying to follow hard after you. 
Help them to look past my faults and my flaws and see your beauty and your majesty, God, and know that you and you alone are worthy of praise. And so even in my life, I'll take those, those little pieces of Scripture and I will pray that and those pieces of Scripture will become my prayers because that's a promise that, that God has made and I want to circle that promise. And so um, I think it's so important for us to understand this is not about going out to the parking lot after the service and seeing that shiny new BMW that somebody's parked out there and walking circles around that car and praying for God to deliver me the BMW that I want. It's also not like some internet ad that you see in the sidebar of the one weird trick that God doesn't want you to know. All right, Becoming a circle maker starts with identifying the promise that God wants you to stake claim to. And then you need to start circling that promise until God gives you what he wants you to have. Now, here's the problem. Most of us don't get what we want simply because we don't know what we want. We've never taken the time to examine our life and think about what really brings us joy, what makes us successful, what makes us happy. Quite honestly, other than things, most of us have never made a list of what goals we have in life. So as Batterson says in his books, instead of drawing circles, we draw blanks. See, here's another cool thing about Jericho. More than a thousand years later, in the same location, we have another miracle recorded in Scripture. If you look to your New Testament in Matthew 20, you'll see this story. Matthew 20, 29 starts as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho. So they were just outside of the walls of Jericho, right? As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Now, this question just seems crazy to me. Maybe it does to you, too. I mean, it used to make me question Jesus. There's two blind men sitting by the road, and they're calling out to you. I mean, are you, are you dense? I mean, do you really not know what they want? Or, or maybe, I mean, is Jesus really not being very compassionate in this situation? Well, I don't think either of those are the case. Instead, I think Jesus wants them to define exactly what they want from him. He wants them to spell it out. Not because he doesn't know what they want, but because he has to be sure that they know what they wanted. And I think the same is true for us. When we start drawing prayer circles, we really need to understand what we want to circle. I mean, think about this. What if Jesus were here right now and he asked you that same question? What do you want from me? What do you want me to do for you? What would you say? I know some of us, like these blind men, would have the one big thing that maybe God could do for us, that, that we only God could do, and that we've been praying for constantly, or, or maybe we've never had the courage to pray for, but we know it's the one thing in our lives that we really want and need. But for you, would you be able to give voice to those promises of God? Would you be able to speak those miracles and dreams that God's put in your heart? Here's what I think is so often true. While we may believe that God is for us, we don't know what we want God to do for us. And that's why our prayers are boring sometimes. They're, they're uninspiring to us, and I, I have to imagine they're uninspiring to God. But as we spend time in prayer, as we develop our faith, as our prayers become better developed and better defined. We start to understand what we want. We start to understand what truly does bring us joy and what brings us happiness and, 
What doesn't? Every day as you're circling in prayer, you should be able to answer this question. What do you want me to do for you? Now, obviously, that answer changes over time in different phases of life. Uh, we pursue different dreams. We require different miracles. We, we, we latch on to different promises from Scripture. They speak to us differently as we grow in our faith and in our life. And that's, that's why I'm becoming more and more of a prayer, uh, a believer of the importance of writing down your prayers. And so I've already told you I started keeping a prayer journal. I've been a lot better at it this year than I have before. So here's what I want to do. Here's, here's the big takeaway for today. Here's what I want to challenge you with. During this four-week series we're in right now, I want to challenge you to do one thing differently in your prayers. I want to challenge you to start keeping a prayer list, to start writing down a list of things you're praying for. This could be as simple as one sheet of paper uh, in a notebook that you keep by your bed or you keep in your car or wherever you like to pray. That could be uh, a note on your uh, phone or your iPad. Uh, it could be, personally, I like to keep a prayer journal. I, I have that one that I began keeping at the beginning of this year. But I think there are at least three reasons uh, to write down your prayers. And this is what I want to leave you with today, and these are in your worship program if you want to follow along. I'm fine. I'm not always consistent as I like, but when I am consistent with this, it makes all the difference in the world of how I pray, and I want that to be true for you too. So uh, number one is this. It helps you focus your prayers. It helps you focus your prayers. My mind tends to wander during my prayer. Now, maybe you're not like that, okay? Maybe you can sit for hours on end and pray about all the things that are happening in your life and all the people that you've said, hey, I'll be praying for you. Remember them? All those people? Maybe you can do that. If you can do that, God bless you. I mean, more power to you, but like many of you, I don't always remember what I'm supposed to be praying about. So I'll, I'll be sitting there, and I'm like, uh, Lord, I want to thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for the blessings you give me, and I want to squirrel, and I'm off, right? Just like that, I'm off track, or I forget what I'm supposed to be praying about. If I have those written down, it's easier to be efficient in praying. Now, that may sound mechanical for you, but it's okay to be efficient in your prayers. Just like it's okay to be efficient in communicating with your spouse, it's okay to be efficient in communicating with people you work with, uh, it's okay to be efficient in communicating with God. If I've written those down, it's easier to be efficient. Uh, some people love spending long hours in prayer, and that's great, but I like to communicate with the Lord efficiently. I want to tell him what I want him to hear, and then I want to spend some time listening to what he has to say. I mean, he already knows what's in my heart anyway, so I don't need to use a lot of big and fancy words. I just need to be able to verbalize it as efficiently as I can. And keeping a list helps me focus on those things that I'm supposed to be praying. Number two is this. It helps you prioritize your prayers. You know, maybe there are a lot of things that you wish God would do, but there are two or three or four that you need him to do. Well, those need to be at the top of the list. Keeping a list helps you keep those two or three or ten you know, most important things right in front of you so that you pray about them every time you sit down to pray. It's a way that you can be persistent in your prayers for a few things. And that once they're answered, you can check it off and add something else. For some of you, that sounds mechanical probably, but what a great way to keep first things first. And number three, the third reason you should write down your prayers is it helps you remember your prayers. As we've been preparing for the series, I've been going through some of my old prayer journals and um, I love looking back at them and seeing what I was praying for and how God came through in those ways. I, I found a prayer journal from before I even became a pastor, and I was working in the corporate world, and I remember I was on a trip to Haiti, and one of my prayers was just seeing all of the people in Haiti that were so happy and so joyful with their love of God, but they were so destitute with not having very much stuff. And I just remember praying, and I wrote, wrote down, God, show me what I'm supposed to do with all of this. 
And to look back three years and to think, well, I've made this huge transition from being in a corporate job, in corporate life, to being a pastor. And I'm like, God's really shown me that. And to remember that God answered that prayer has been so incredible for me. I'll look back sometimes and I'll think, I can't believe how hard I was struggling for that. Or, or I, look how God came through and answered that prayer. Or even sometimes, wow, I still battle that. I need to keep praying about that again. You know, being a circle maker isn't about God blessing you with the stuff you think you deserve in life. Instead, it's about sharing the fullness of your life with him. It's about being keenly aware of his promises and the promises he made to you and the promises he makes through scripture and asking him to deliver on those promises. It's about inviting Jesus into every aspect of your life. It's about asking his Holy Spirit to intervene in those situations when you're not strong enough. And it's always telling God the desires of your heart. It's about working toward being in a constant state of communication with the God who created you and who loves you and who sent his only son, Jesus, to die for you. You know, Christ came, and he lived a perfect life, and he died a death that we deserve so that he could spend the rest of eternity with you. Isn't that somebody you want to talk to on a regular basis? So my good friend Kevin Russell likes to say, someday uh, when you get to heaven, you'll see Jesus, and you'll be able to continue all of those conversations you started on earth. Don't you want to have something to talk about? Over the next three weeks, we're going to continue talking about prayer. We're going to look at what it means to dream big. I mean, how even our biggest prayers aren't intimidating to God. We're going to talk about praying hard. You know, what does it mean when God doesn't answer right away? And how, what, do we, what does it mean to pray through something instead of praying about something? And we're going to talk about thinking long, how God is not subject to our timeline. And some of the things we need to be praying about are way longer term than we think. I mean, many of you are an answer to a prayer that your parents or grandparents prayed at one time. And what does it mean for us to be praying for those generations to come? Uh, Even the the prayers that are bigger than we think or aren't answered like we think or are longer term than we think, we still need to be praying for those. There are higher heights and deeper depths in prayer, and God wants to take you there. He, He wants to take you to a new level of faith and one you've never reached before. But as a friend of mine in the business world likes to say, if you keep doing what you've been doing, you'll keep getting what you've been getting. And so if you want to go to a new place in prayer, if you want to build that relationship with the God of the universe, and you want to let him get to know you better, and you want to get to know him better, you've got to do something new. You've got to commit to doing something different. It's time to start making circles. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for... uh, the story of Joshua and how it instructs us and how it reminds us, first of all, that if you've promised something, you're going to deliver it. We just need to be obedient to you and be prayerful about those things, God, that we can circle your biggest promises and we can have confidence that you'll come through. But God, more than that, it reminds us of the power that you have, the strength that you have, the might that you have, the faithfulness that you have. You're always faithful, even when we don't see it. Lord, for the nation of Israel, it must have looked like over 400 years that uh, maybe you were absent. Maybe you had given up on your promise. Maybe you had forgotten. God, will you help us to remember, even in those times of drought in our lives, when we're praying to you, and it seems like you're not going to come through, God, that you are always faithful, that you never fail. We just rest our hope on that promise today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen.